Yeah, on. I tell you, Nubs, I've been waiting for a long time to say this. You ready? I'm ready. Good morning, everybody. (laughs) In true radio morning drive fashion, good morning, everybody. And the reason I say this is because it it actually is morning. And uh, so if we kind of have our Barry White going on, you know. Little, little something extra on the low end that might be why but typically we do this in the evenings and a couple times we've done it in the uh, afternoon we've done a nooner but this is like actual like a.m so good morning everybody and good morning nubs and what's your hangover level on a scale of one to ten <laughs> i have this like sort of rule that um, no one is like extra cheery to me in the morning, you know, at work. It's like, I just ruined that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if I want a good morning, it's usually like a morning and it's like Ugh, morning. Yeah. yeah. I'd rather yeah. be asleep. So yeah. I, I'm, but I'm really perked up after your enthusiasm there. Are you? No, you no doubt you want, about it. You want, if you want me to downshift a little, I can. No, man, bring it strong. Bring it strong. <laughs> well, it's probably good that we're doing this in the morning uh, because, you know, with the Mars Volta and, and this album specifically, you know, if you start talking about this type of thing, you know, too late, I mean, we might have some, we might have some bad dreams. You know, we might be, you know, having dreams about snakes and ice picks and, you know, all kinds of things that are going down here during uh, tonight's album. Um, so I don't know, maybe it's good that we get this out of the way in the morning so we don't go to bed scared. The reason I'm groggy is not because it's morning for us. It's because I've been listening to this album for six days. And <laughs> if, if you're going to listen to Cassandra Gemini, you know, 20 times, you're not going to sleep much. Yeah, it's uh, it's a little bit of a grind. It's it's a little bit uh, mentally and maybe in some cases even, you know, physically exhausting. But, you know, that's part of uh, what'll be interesting today. Now, I'm not sure how many people listening are familiar with the Mars Volta or have heard this album. I would guess that, you know, some are and many aren't. So, uh, you know, last week, uh, Nubs brought the Huey Lewis. And uh, this week, we're bringing the Mars Volta, which may be a learning experience for some of you. But nothing really sums up two twins in an album better than, I think, the back-to-back of... Huey Lewis in the news, followed by these cats. What do you think, Nub? Yeah, you said it in the Huey episode. Uh, I forgot which band I was talking about. I was wearing a Mastodon shirt. And you were complimenting uh, Starship. Stop Us Now by Starship. Yeah, <laughs> yes. which is a great song. Huh? Certainly is. So, yeah, I mean, look, the whole, the whole point of Two Twins in an album is we're not elitists. We don't, we don't buy into a genre. We buy into, you know, good music or bad music. I was just recently listening to a... Uh, interview with Jason Beeler, you know, from Saigon Kick, who's, by the way, about to put out an album that I think is going to be incredible. And he basically said that he was like, there's, you know, in his exact words, there's shit music and non shit music. And, you know, so, <laughs> you know, we, we, that that's kind of our goal here at Two Twins in an Album, right? That's our goal. And uh, hey, let's get into our next segment and hope that there's no shit music included. Let's go round and round. 
Well, Nubs, uh, you may have actually spoiler alerted one of my choices, uh, but uh, what are your choices today for Round and Round? What do you got going? First would be the album Burn My Eyes from Machine Head. Now, this is an album that actually the band is pretty known for because yeah. I think it's either the first or second one. I think it's the first one on, on Metal Blade. Interesting album because it sets up, I think, the growth of the band that would come afterwards, which is pretty tremendous. I mean, in the in the metal world, Machine Head is very unique and very identifiable, and this kind of sets the stage for that. So, Burn My Eyes. Second would be another metal band, a little more obscure, Shadows Fall, uh, the Of One Blood album. Again, an earlier album in this band's catalog, but at the same time and from the same place that I bought the Machine Head record, I was able to find a a copy of of one blood too. And again, kind of sets up what would come after and shadows fall as a band. I really, really like, and then just shifting gears a wee bit would be a live album called arena from 1984 by Duran Duran, a band sure. just completely at its peak. You know, seemingly every teenage girl probably had posters in their room of Duran Duran. The only one that wasn't a teenage girl was our mom. I think who had a poster of Duran Duran in her room <laughs> right next to the Rick Springfield one. I think it, she had. Exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So Arena is a really cool live album. It's got some nice renditions of some of the most famous songs that Duran Duran did. And it also has like, probably the highest decibel of crowd noise I've ever heard on a live album. <laughs> and, and I, you know, crowd noise is always part of a live album, but on Arena, it, it borders a little bit on the ridiculous, but it does not at all take away from the experience of hearing this band clearly at its commercial and maybe creative peak. The only live album where the crowd noise may rival arena is the Ozzy Osbourne live and loud. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's legit higher than the music, you know, even while the songs are at full go, but yeah, no doubt. You, you know, you and I have a term um, uh, called Kurt Warnering and it goes back to the, the old quarterback in the NFL, the Super Bowl champ quarterback, which, by the way, go Chiefs. Let's just throw that out there today. Absolutely. And it was like during the greatest show on turf and the the Rams, the St. Louis Rams at the time were just on fire. And, you know, they would do these post-game interviews with Kurt Warder. And he was just like, he had the half smile going, like everything was cooking, you know, in, in uh, with him professionally. You know, you could just tell he was like a happy guy. And I feel like Arena by Duran Duran is them kind of Kurt Warnering a little bit. Like they were just kind of flexing at that point with, you know, how en fuego that that band was. And yet they deserved it. They're an amazing band. That's a great call, man. And and you know, you mentioned the Go Chiefs. We might have to make up a a term Dan Campbelling. Did you happen to watch the press conference of the new Detroit Lions coach? Who's my you're a Chiefs fan. I'm a Lions fan. Did you watch his press conference? I did not. What? <laughs> oh, dude, the guy's amazing. You got to watch it. Really? Yes, you have to watch it. Everyone out there, whether you're whether you're a sports fan or not, should totally watch this guy. So maybe we'll have a, a Kurt Warner, a Kurt Warnering category, and then maybe we'll have a Dan Campbelling because this dude, people are gonna like this guy. I don't know if he's gonna win a game or not, but he certainly. He let's just say this: he used a Big Lebowski reference in his press conference. Oh, so he's like a duder. Yes. Oh, yeah. Did he have lots of swag or was he just cool or both? I would, I would say neither. <laughs> I don't think oh, he neither. Swag and he's definitely not cool, but he's, he's all passion and fire. And dude, he, when he threw out a Lebowski reference, I was like, I'm in like, I'm all in. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty amazing. All right. T. Well, uh, what is uh run and run for you today? 
Well, the first song that's uh, based on the aforementioned football squad that we mentioned, here's the the tune that's uh, round and round for me right now. The Chiefs are on the warpath. Go Chiefs go. The Chiefs are on the warpath. The Chiefs go. Thunder down the field and bring them go. Go Chiefs go. That's what's round and round for me. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, that's an amazing tune. No, actually, what's round and round for me first is you, you mentioned Jason Beeler. Obviously, you know, we've talked about uh, Saigon Kick here and there um, through various times of the the old podcast here. Definitely a, I mean, a top band for me. Jason Beeler was obviously the guitar player, vocalist. At the beginning, he was sort of the, I would say, co-lead vocalist. Uh, and then became the lead lead vocalist really after only two albums. Um, so he has been, you know, one of the great things about Jason is he's been at work for years, you know, doing solo tracks, EPs, putting out stuff through Bandcamp. You can, you can buy every song he's recorded essentially since Saigon kick, um, for like $45 on Bandcamp. I mean, it's just an incredible, anybody who just wants some good music that maybe like Saigon kick a little bit, just go buy it. I mean, it's an, it's like, I think it's like in total, like 150 songs or something. So as you noted earlier, um, and I agree, this is going to be a very intriguing album and it actually did come out. It's out this week. Um, it is called songs for the apocalypse. I've listened to it a couple of times. It's great. And really looking forward to continuing to, to spin it. That's first. The second is something that came out, um, actually this week as well as a reissue through the SDE um, portal. And that's the fine young cannibals uh, reissues of their first album. And then their second album, the Ron, the cooked huge FYC fan uh, Ron, the cooked has been spinning. And the third is uh, I guess we'll uh, I think I threw Beatles in there last week, but I'm going to throw the new McCartney solo album in here. McCartney three still getting to know it. I do not have a strong opinion on it either way. But I do like, I like how he named it McCartney 3, and it's sort of marking, I think, a continuation of him playing everything and executing everything and kind of back to his roots as a solo artist in a way. So really, I don't know if you've heard it yet, Nubs, but uh, looking forward to kind of absorbing it further here. I have heard it. Um, so it's actually, you, you, you kind of nailed it. It's the third installment of him recording at home. McCartney, the first one, that's the one with like junk and maybe I'm amazed. That was his true first solo album on Apple Records that right. he did right at the end of the Beatles. McCartney 2 was not his second solo album. It was the album that came out in, I think, the early 80s with Coming Up on it, and Temporary Secretary. And it was the right. second one he did by himself. So then, you know, a couple of decades plus later, he does McCartney 3 as sort of the third installment of this. So I think they've all been spotty. Um, Paul McCartney is so interesting as a solo artist, you know, when he gets it right, that's putting it nicely. I think yeah, yeah. <laughs> when he gets it right, it's really magical and it's, it just brings back kind of the greatness of him, but he's operated a little bit by the quantity theory because there's just so much output and there's so much of it. That's really bad. Everything I've heard off this new one is interesting because it's like reading somebody's diary, but I wouldn't say I, would, I enjoy listening to it. 
So I, I'm still sort of figuring out whether I'm going to buy it. You know, part of his really need to be relevant is charming. Part of it's a little strange. You know, sometimes you, you feel like he's trying to be 30 again and trying to hop on to some of the various fads and trends to stay current and stay relevant. And I don't know, I go back and forth on that. I love the fact that there's a Beatle who's alive and musically relevant. Not that Ringo isn't both, but sometimes it gets a little kind of like you roll your eyes a little bit at Paul. Or is that just me? No, it's definitely not just you. Particularly, remember too, Paul believes in a lot of things. One thing Paul does not believe in is prenuptial agreements. (laughs) You have to remember that everything he's doing now, recording and selling records, the, the sort of endless touring that he's done, is all going towards a certain place. And financially, he needs to continue to do this. So. He's he's always been a creative soul, of course, like not trying to take any of that away from him. But there's also some commercial reasons that he's continued to try and tap into the market. And, you know, message for all millionaires and billionaires might might be a good idea to get a prenup, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. If you have valuable assets, that might be. Listen, Paul's wonderful um, and everything. I'm not sure he's terribly smart, terribly bright. Is that fair? I think it's fair. I think it's fair. (laughs) All right. Well, let's get into some guys who, at least in their own minds and in their own rights, are brilliant. Oh, they certainly believe they're bright. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, and that is the Mars Volta. You know, for those that aren't kind of sure how these guys came about, you know, the quick history on this, this El Paso, Texas, I mean, we'll call them a duo. Obviously, we'll talk. There's some very important musicians as part of this this particular album and this project early on that played a big part. But ultimately, these are a couple guys from El Paso, Texas, that formed a band in the mid '90s called Add the Drive-In. Many people now know who Add the Drive-In is. Many people, some people at the time knew who Add the Drive-In was. But long story short, you know, they came up as part of this kind of post-hardcore emo sort of punk deal, um, but with some intriguing elements uh, from a musicianship performance and vocal standpoint. They were on the brink of becoming enormous. I mean, I think everybody agrees that Add the Drive-In was about to break. And then they decided in very um, Cedric and Omar fashion, those are the two guys we're referring to here, to break up and thus formed the Mars Volta. So we'll dig a little bit further into that story. We will dig certainly further into tonight's or this morning's album as we get into the nerdy deets. All right, Francis the Mute by the Mars Volta was released on March 1st, 2005. It is a 77-minute album with 64 minutes of music. The other 13 minutes, noise. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So we were talking a little bit about At The Drive-In, and, you know, so this band was going to be big. They were pretty innovative. You know, they're coming up from El Paso, Texas, which is not a... 
necessarily a, a musical hotbed as far as bands making the big time and then decided to break up. So the two main members of the Mars Volta were part of at the drive-in and that is now I, I may completely butcher some pronunciations today. So, so work with me here if so, but the two members being Cedric Bixler Zavala on vocals and lyrics, of course. And then Omar Rodriguez Lopez on guitar, production, direction, dictatorship, uh, my way or the highway. Uh, <laughs> exactly. You name it. That was Omar. Also a part, and it's kind of interesting because we've talked a lot about a band called Sparta, uh, led by Jim Ward. Jim Ward was also in At The Drive-In. So these two spinoff bands from At The Drive-In formed, and one was led by Jim Ward, which is Sparta. Just kind of more of a, I would say more of a straightforward kind of, I don't know, I guess they're just a rock band, right? I mean, I don't, I don't know that there's anything intricate about the way you'd describe Sparta. I think Sparta sounds a lot more like at the drive-in, certainly on Wiretap Scars, which is yeah. the first Sparta album. Yeah, it's probably a continuation of, of this sort of post-hardcore thing. So that was Sparta, and that's where Jim Ward took things after at the drive-in. He took a couple of the guys with him. And then... Cedric and Omar formed this, it's a prog band, right? I mean, it's a very uh, cosmic, unique, progressive rock group, but I think it's, I mean, you're the, you're the prog guy here, Nub, and I think it's very fair to classify these guys as a prog band. Oh, there's no doubt about it. And their influences are pretty clear. Their influences are just not well known. You know, you're talking about some elements of prog that does get into more of the avant-garde mixed with, you know, heavier guitars. I mean, their song structures are, are, are a little more like yes than anything else, but then the sound itself does have some uniqueness to it. They actually are not the first band to mix prog, even with kind of Latin rhythms and things that, of that nature. So they're, they're more influenced by direct and clear influences than one might think. But there are influences that you have to dig to figure out and, and kind of learn more about. Well, one of their big influences, we have done a full album episode on, and you know exactly who I'm talking about. That's King Crimson. And you're exactly right, because I thought in many cases that the Mars Volta were just complete originals. And then you listen to King Crimson, which I went way too long without doing. And it's like, oh, <laughs> okay. Oh, these guys listen to Red all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I get it. So, you know, at the drive-in was was falling apart. In fact, one of the uh famous incidents was at the Big Day Out Festival, which is this enormous, it's the Coachella of Australia. It's a, just a huge festival. And at the drive-in was playing and the audience was moshing. You know, this was 1997 or whatever. This is what people did. And Cedric was furious that, you know, people were like moshing and you know, going nuts and tried to ask them to stop. And people were pretty much like, screw you. This is, <laughs> this is what we do at this festival. And Cedric went on this tirade and calling them robots and calling them sheep. And he was by, you know, buying like a sheep and, and they walked off the stage after like three songs, you know? So this was a combination of a band that I think had gotten tired uh, of itself in a band that, you know, saw themselves as becoming part of a genre and a scene that they didn't want to be a part of. And I think that's part of the context around 
why the hard pivot from this more straightforward kind of post-hardcore rock band into something that was very proggy and very experimental with the Mars Volta. And I think that 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 whole story is important as far as when you break up what may have been perhaps the most hyped band ever to have a sudden breakup um, because they feel confined. I think it really gives you at least that lead context as to how they came about forming this very unique and interesting project called the Mars Volta. We'll talk a lot in this episode about contradictions because they're all over the Mars Volta. One of their main contradictions is that whether it's in at the drive-in or the Mars Volta or whatever other incarnation they've worked as, the second they taste any like mainstream success, they reject it immediately. However, no two guys in the universe want more attention than Cedric and Omar. <laughs> right. And that's what's like so hilarious about artists in general, but specifically musicians that kind of have their attitude and their approach is on one hand, I don't want any attention. I want to stay really underground. And, and then on the other hand, it's like, look at us, you know, in every way possible. But we just want you to look at us in the way that we want you to pay attention to us. You know what I'm saying? It- oh, yeah. And, and I, I, think, I think you're nailing it on contradictions. And that's part of what turned a lot of people off to this band and to Cedric and Omar as a whole. What's the first word? You know exactly what the word is when you think of these guys. Pretentious. 100%. Pretension. Totally. And, you know, these guys really were shamelessly pretentious with kind of their viewpoints on music and viewpoints on scenes and all these things. I mean, they're, they're guys that were scary, talented, scary, creative, but couldn't get out of their own way as far as kind of overthinking their place. I think they've grown up since. I mean, these guys are in their 40s now. But it's kind of a little bit too little too late because they really struggled to keep band members. And boy, they had some good ones. And we'll talk about that in a second. And once the Mars Volta finally crumbled, which was inevitable, you know, Cedric and Omar didn't talk to each other for like five years. So this is something that, you know, these guys were a little bit of a time bomb. And you could see that by the way they kind of went through a lot of different band members uh, throughout the kind of entire era of the Mars Volta. But obviously, Nubs, when it comes to Francis the Mute, this band was in full form and they were on fire. They took on an incredibly ambitious project here with Francis the Mute. And, And while Cedric and Omar are insanely talented and Omar obviously was the vision and the dictator of this project, they, there's no way they would have been able to do this properly without the musician support that they had. Correct. And it seems like they never built a culture of team collaboration. The things that any band needs to have longevity. If you look at what happened after this album, the band just really went into sort of a creative spiral. Yeah. And, and it ended in a really bad way. I mean, those last couple albums are really bad. Yeah, they're bad. You know, you know, every band is only as strong as how you are as people. It's like everything else in life. It's like any business, you know, it's the people. And if the people are dysfunctional, the band is going to be dysfunctional. And therefore the music is eventually going to show dysfunction. Now that's not the case on this album. And it sure as hell not the case on the one that preceded it. But after this, I mean, the whole thing just spun, you know, 
into yeah. a bad place. And again, they, they struck lightning one more time. But aside from that, you're talking about some very forgettable output. Yeah, I think you're right. And one of the other, you know, to use your term contradictions here is the Mars Volta always, you know, Cedric and Omar was all about the art, man. You know, it was all about the creative process and all these things. Meanwhile, Omar, and we'll get into it as we dig in here, but Omar completely took full control, charge, and tyranny over this album. I mean, this was something that this was something that was executed completely in his vision to the point where, I mean, he basically mapped out the parts for the band members. And if they had suggestions, they would be heard. I bet they would be implemented rarely, if I had to guess. Now, I wasn't part of the sessions, but, you know, part of, to your point, this spiral that I think took place after Francis the Mute and a couple of the band members have talked about it had a lot to do with the fact that here are these guys that are so creative and so artistic. And this should be about collaboration and artistic execution. And meanwhile, you've got a guy who, like, literally was telling his band members, and these aren't studio musicians, these are band members, how to play their parts, you know, down to the metronomic beat, you know, because they recorded with metronome here because Omar wanted it to be so precise with kind of what he had mapped out. So another contradiction, and I think one that led to some problems with some band members. Now, they had a loyalist in this band, and his name was Juan Alderite, and he was the bass player for the Mars Volta, and he was basically there the whole time. You can tell that Juan, great player, maybe a little bit of a fanboy. He was completely wrapped up in the project and what they were doing and thought it was artistically and musically important. I think Juan was, was the loyalist, and he was really there from start to finish. The second notable member is Isaiah Ike Owens. He played the piano and the keyboards. Uh, he actually died in 2014. Big part of this as well. And now they brought in some support uh, on this record for certain sections on the piano. But Ike was a part of this deal. Now, he left the band a few years after Francis the Mute. So he stuck around a little bit. But the key band member here that I want to focus on, and you're not going to be surprised by this, is John Theodore. John Theodore is probably a top, you know, certainly a top five drummer for me of all time. He's currently playing with Queens of the Stone Age. He's done several projects, including, you know, some things that I love, uh, the, the effing Am, Trans Am, a band called Golden. He did a project with Zach De La Rocha called One Day as a Lion. They were supposed to put out a full length. They just put out an EP, but it's really good. He's a special drummer. Now, he grew up in Baltimore. He studied at Oberlin in Ohio. Shout out to the OH. You know, he, he's a guy that was a very chill, you know, kind of all about the, the process. He came up playing in San Francisco with a lot of these bands where, you know, it was all about, you know, just playing music and loving music. You know, you can tell he's a guy that just loves to play. He's a student of the drums and a student of how to incorporate drums into music collaboratively. And he's been a great fit for Queens of Stone Age. I know Josh freaking loves having him in that band and, and rightly so. Pretty shortly after Francis the Mute, uh, John Theodore was no longer a part of Mars Volta. He played on the following album, I think half the tracks and Omar fired him and felt like, you know, felt like he wasn't into it, felt like he wasn't all in. 
And, you know, again, this was a time where Omar was really taking control of this band and its members in a, in a, I think an unhealthy way. John said, you know, shortly thereafter, he said the life ran out of it, you know, basically admittedly saying I I lost my energy and my passion and my interest for being a part of this. Now, these guys have grown up a little bit and both Omar and Cedric, even present day, have said that firing John Theodore was the single worst mistake of the band's history. And I think when you hear how he contributed to Francis the Mutant, certainly to your point, Nub, how he contributed to Deloust, the previous album, I think that his departure had a lot to do. Now, now obviously, I think cosmetically and philosophically, to your point, you know, a band's going to go downhill with a lot of the drama that these guys had, but just mechanically, as far as musically what's happening on the albums that followed, not having John Theodore crush this band. He was a huge part of it, especially live. You know, you and I were both able to see Mars Volta a couple times with Theodore on drums and uh, just so powerful, you know, and, and in this band, which meanders a lot and does a lot of stops and starts and texture changes and dynamic changes, him being able to drive a beat when they were at their full throttle was very important. And, and there's probably no better drummer in the history of rock music than John Theodore to do that. I mean, he's, He's got the power of Bonham in the hands of Buddy Rich. Yeah, that's right. That goes a long way. And okay, the two guys, thankfully, have grown up since. I wish people would check themselves more in their 20s than they do. But, you know, now they can say, yeah, that was a mistake. Well, why do you think about that at the time? You know, make good, thoughtful decisions about your team as opposed to just thinking about, you know, yourselves and how wrapped up one may or may not be in this particular project. Now, to, to the group's credit, I mean, when they did the other great album, the only great album in the second half of this band's catalog, which is the Bedlam and Goliath, I think. I, I just, I love that record. I think it's fantastic. They did go out and get Thomas Pregan, who's like, you know, one of the best drummers in the world as yeah, well. Yeah, he's, he's no slouch. But, right. uh... <laughs> but Theodore, Theodore with these guys, and especially on Deloused in the Comatorium, because the reason I would love Deloused so much is because it really sounds like a band. Francis Samute does not. It, it, it's, we'll get to it. It's, it's more disjointed because, like you mentioned, that singular vision. Yeah. And Thomas was a hell of a drummer. We saw him live with him, I think, on that Bedlam tour, Bedlam and Goliath tour. But it still wasn't the same. You know, you still didn't have that kind of acid rock feel that you got when, when the band had John and had kind of all of its members cooking. I mean, it was... And seeing them in that format was was pretty special, and we'll get to it. So as for the story and meaning of this album, I mean, we're not going to go down that rabbit hole because we'll, this will be a three-hour episode if we do, but, but uh, oh boy. I mean, <laughs> there's a lot going on here, lyrically, thematically, and it, it really is a story. There are message boards dedicated to figuring out the meaning of this story and the meaning of this album and the characters involved and all that. I mean, even to this day, I got to say, you know, I'm, I'm 40 years old and I still every now and again do a little lap around uh, some of the old uh, <laughs> posts and everything because I'm, I'm kind of fascinated by the whole thing. Um, but clearly there is a, you know, a, a rather, while it's vague, there, there's certainly a linear story taking place here that probably only Cedric knows and understands. but. The way that this story and these themes were developed is actually really interesting. 
So there was a guy named Jeremy Ward. He was related to Jim Ward, who we talked about earlier that formed Sparta. So another El Paso guy and, you know, guy that grew up with Cedric and Omar. And, you know, he was part of the Mars Volta, you know, not really a heavy contributor, but kind of, you know, they, they called these guys sound manipulators, which is totally weird, but you know, they would provide some effects and some layers and some things like that. So Jeremy was technically kind of part of the band. And before the Mars Volta, before joining the Mars Volta, he was a repo man. And in the backseat of a car that they were working on, he found a diary and started kind of looking through it and got kind of fascinated with some of the things that were being talked about and some of the people that were being noted. One of the more fascinating parts of what he uncovered in this random diary that he found in the backseat of this car is that the person was adopted and the person was kind of going through this journey of trying to find their biological parents and connect all the dots and, and have it make sense. Um, Jeremy was also adopted. Every name and most of these song titles that we're going to go through contain a person's name is contained in this diary written by this mystery person. So they basically took this and created, I think, a certainly a fictional story, but one that incorporates some of the themes that that they read in this piece. And it's really kind of cool and interesting if you think about it. So Cedric kind of took this and obviously he's the main lyricist and vocalist and he created, you know, some sort of story around this. Now, while musically there's a lot going on here, thematically and lyrically in this story being told is a big part of Francis the Mute. So I don't know, Nubs, if you think, uh, if you're just kind of whatever on on getting down into the uh, rabbit hole of Cedric's mind and the story and the diary and all that, but yeah, I got to admit, I think it's kind of cool. I'm sure it's fascinating. I get what you're saying. It's very cool that there's resources to get engaged in that. Just not for me. I uh, would rather listen to the album from a musical perspective. I'd rather think more about John Theodore's drumming than about the mind of Cedric and Omar. I think we get plenty of the mind of Cedric and Omar when we get into the Mars Volta. So it's it's cool that that uh, that that gives you a greater appreciation for the album, and I could see why. I mean, it it it's it's all over the place at first glance, but I'm sure if you dive into it, you could find a lot of different metaphors and interpretations and all those sort of things. So. Um, but no, not for me. Well, I can't blame you for that necessarily. Um, what's cool about these guys, and we'll shift to the music part of this a little bit, is a lot of this album was worked out during kind of improv jams during shows. Now, did you see them on the Delos tour? I did not. I did. I saw them at St. Andrews Hall in Detroit. It was their first Detroit show, as far as I know. Okay. So you probably saw a lot of Francis the Mute material unknowingly because they were working out a lot of these, particularly these long pieces during certain songs. The band never really actually got in a room and played. You know, Omar met with John, Omar met with Ike, Omar met with Juan, Omar met with Cedric, siloed. I mean, that's the way this was developed. Now, that's not always terrible. I don't want to say like, oh, they weren't jamming, like whatever. I mean, there have been some incredible albums and incredible music that has been arranged and executed in this way. So this is fine. You know, there, every band generally has somebody with the creative and compositional vision and, and that's fine. 
But the meticulous nature of this, as far as a creative effort, is a big part of what you hear because it's insanely calculated, right? And some people in the band actually said that they liked this, including John. John Theodore was kind of like, eh, this is fine. You know, we worked sectionally, we worked in a silo. I recorded the, the drums were recorded first. He kind of didn't mind it, but others in the band were like, this isn't a band. You know, this is kind of a, we're like studio musicians here. And so I think that's probably um, why in many cases it became sort of in a way the beginning and the end, but something that regardless of whether you like this album or not, it's a spectacular listen, you know, no matter how you add it up. This record was very successful. This sold over half a million copies. Uh, it went gold. Um, the songs are featured on Guitar Hero and some kind of, you know, mainstreamy type elements. And it hit number four on the Billboard charts. It spent 19 weeks on Billboard. So, you know, this was not a uh, underground thing. This, is, this was an album that did extremely well for Universal Records. Now, one of the things that's really interesting is there are really five songs on the record. But when this when the CD was released, uh, it, they, there are actually 13 tracks. Now, here's another contradiction for you, Nub. It's all about the art, man. We don't care about the money, man. We're in this for the music, bro. Well, Universal basically said, okay, you guys got five songs. You're going to make EP wages on this record. And they kind of said, well, if we, you know, <laughs> I don't know if we want abbreviated extended play wages. We want LP wages. We want full album wages on this. So they actually broke the last song that you've referred to, Cassandra Dramini, into uh, multiple parts, which made it 13 tracks. Obviously, at 77 minutes, you're meeting that threshold. So they were able to be paid the full album wages and royalties. But Yet another interesting thing about these guys. I'm glad you brought that up because that, that was one of the significant things to me when I first, I first heard this album on CD. I didn't have it on vinyl. And it was like, oh, okay. Like, I see. They're going to take their grand masterpiece and break it up in a way so people could grab segments, whether that's radio or whatever, and find a way to fragment this 32-minute piece. And that was a big moment for me because I was like, you know, Yes didn't do that with Close to the Edge. You know, Genesis did not do that with Supper's Ready. So here come the Mars Volta with all their prog credibility and all that. You said it perfectly. And they decided to break theirs up into different tracks. And I knew it had to be a business thing. And, and I'm sure that was part of the compromise with Universal so they could get their money, you know. But yeah, it, it's... That was a, an early signal to me, like, okay, these guys want it, but they don't really want it. What about yeah. the internet money? We want some of that money. Yeah, more money. They want, want more money. More money. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, the, certainly a business decision there. So always interesting with these guys. Hey, I'm sure we could go on even longer about these nerdy deeds, but we'll cut it off there. I think that's pretty sufficient. So let's get into, hey, you just mentioned yes. Did you do that on purpose? I don't know. Maybe you did. Maybe you didn't. Let's do the wonder stories. Return 
Snubs, you certainly, you know, basically single-handedly introduced me to this band, but what's your wondrous story with them? So I was into At The Drive-In, like most music fans, Relationship of Command came out in 2000, and it was, it was sensational. It was something that you had to have and something that everyone thought was going to be one of the, the sort of next big things, right? But what was really famous about At The Drive-In was their live shows. I mean, the guys were just nuts. You know, if you ever watched some clips of them really back in the day, not this ridiculous reunion thing they've done, the, the shows were, to call them high energy was an understatement. So they became sort of legendary. So when they broke up really on a dime, it was a big deal. And then through music circles, you heard eventually that, like you said, they branched off into these two bands. And so I couldn't wait to hear Sparta and I could not wait to hear the Mars Volta because I was fascinated to, to see this division of the three guys who became Sparta and the two guys who became the Mars Volta. So, and then when Francis the Mute came out, that you know, took everything to a whole new level which in some ways was captivating and in some ways was the beginning of the end of my thinking that this band was going to take over the world. But it, it all came from at the drive-in and the fascination with Sparta fed the fascination with the Mars Volta and vice versa. And in, in both cases, both bands peaked in their first two albums. In both cases, neither band made something of substance since and both bands kind of went into a place where they found instability, dysfunction, and therefore the music really suffered. But it, it was fun to, uh, to kind of introduce you to them and see your passion take over for them. So tell us your wonder story for the Mars Volta. Yeah, that's good stuff. I, you know, um, so another show that you basically made me go see, I was in New York City at the time you were in Michigan. You said, hey, the Mars Volta is coming there. You just go. You know, it was like on a Thursday night and you were like, just, just go, just believe, trust me, just go. I, I don't know if you'll like it, but you got to see these guys. It's worth it. And to your point about the live show, um, anyone who did get to see them in their prime, it, it actually is a pretty special experience. So saw them on Francis the Mute at Roseland. They did play Cassandra Gemini, which was an experience. We'll get to it. And then you and I went and saw them at Bonnaroo. So we went to the Bonnaroo Festival in 2006. So this album was out, but they played a festival set. So it was a little bit more abbreviated. I don't know if you remember this, but the power went out. Uh, they started, I think they played Drunken Ship first, which was typically their first song. And the power completely went out. And, you know, these guys were, they were intimidating. Like, you, you know, you definitely were captivated. Again, you knew they were pretentious. You knew they were kind of full of crap sometimes, but you were still very enthralled with their presence. And I saw them at Roseland and it was all business. It was a very serious show, you know, and they played Cassandra and it was, I mean, it was just like straightforward. They, they, I don't even think they said anything to the crowd. So you were always kind of, and this was before YouTube and stuff. You couldn't like get on and like see like interviews with these guys. And so you were, there was this mystique to them. And the power went out, and I remember Cedric made a joke. What I, he was making fun of Omar. He did some goofy joke, and everybody cracked up. And it was like I remember it was like, oh, they're people. Like they have a sense of humor. He told a joke. You know, <laughs> it's like it was it was this kind of thing where it was it reminded you like 
okay, maybe they're not just like complete pretentious assholes. You know, maybe they're wasn't it about like Omar smelling or something? Yeah, he he said like it's really funny. Where do you hide something from Omar? Put it under the soap or you know? Yes, it was that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and it was hilarious. And it was and it was at what was it like two in the morning? It was super late, and the power was out, and somebody had to say something. I mean, it was it was it was actually it was cute. I also got, you know, a little bit obsessed with John Theodore and, and some of his past projects. And, and I got to mention nubs, uh, the kill radio interview. Uh, I I knew you were going to talk about this. (laughs) I, sometimes I get these things that I, you know, I find on uh, YouTube or whatever. It's like past, uh, interviews or whatever and and you do it too nubs don't even pretend like you don't where you just get so into something you like put it on as you're falling asleep or you listen to it every day just because it's funny or interesting or whatever and john John theodore was on this it was called kill radio it was like this internet radio show and it was all these like 18 year old kids from san diego that were like just just high as hell. They were like literally ripping bongs on the air and John Theodore was on the show and just hanging out and people call in. I mean, it's so funny. If you want to like check it out, it's John Theodore on kill radio. It's from like 2005 or something, but I got to mention it because that was one of those things. And even still every few months, I'll just listen to it again because it's so funny. And I kept telling nubs like, this is so funny, man. Listen to and 99% of the time we're, aligned on these things but i think to this day you still haven't gotten why i i think that's so entertaining and funny i've listened to it many times i mean i i get some of it but yeah we're a little usually we're pretty aligned on these things and and this one i i kind of don't get it but i also totally get it so you know it's (laughs) all good it's all good there's some funny stuff so anyway just just a dumb thing to mention there on the side but I, I think, and I touched on it a little bit earlier, I really did get very uh, enthralled and, and borderline obsessed with the meaning of this story. I, I spent a lot of time thinking about too much time and also looking at others' interpretations and all these things. I mean, there are some pretty, you know, drastic themes here. I mean, Jeremy Ward, actually, the person we mentioned earlier who found the diary, you know, died before the recording of Francis the Mute of an overdose. There are some clear drug themes to this. There are some revenge themes to this. There's themes around a murder and a rape that took place. This idea of family and a search for bloodline and the meaning of family. I mean, there's a lot going on here. And I got to admit, I got sort of all in on it. So I won't waste time talking about my interpretation of francis the mute because that would just be a whole nother ball game but but what we will do nub is we will dig into this thing so let's do it without further ado and drop the needle You know, sometimes it's funny, Nub, I got to say, you know, we can see each other on Zoom, even though you guys can't see us. Sometimes it's funny to play that song and just look over at you just sitting there. (laughs) (laughs) Just kind of sitting there waiting for it to end. It's just kind of funny. Almost doing like the Bernie Sanders sitting pose. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Boy, is that thing taken off. eh? It's hilarious. Yeah. All right. Well, this will be interesting. Now, again. Uh, we've got five tracks here. We're going to treat it like five tracks. So let's start out with the opening track here to Francis the Mute by the Mars Volta, which is called Cygnus, Visman Cygnus. Cronus, 
All right, so it's pretty wild here right from the get-go. Now, this is a 13-minute track. So it starts with an intro that actually bookends the album. So in this case, it's, it's called sarcophagi, which is obviously the plural for corpse boxes. Okay, what a great way to kick things off and end things. But uh, the first time you hear it, it's, it's very diluted in the mix. And then you hear it at the very, very end of the album in its full volume. So kind of an interesting beginning and end and sort of bookend piece here for this album. Now, that section that we just played is called Umbilical Syllables. And then you go into the third section, which is called Facilis Decenis Averni, which I actually looked up the uh, translation of. Uh, A lot of this is Latin. Some of this is Spanish. And the translation is Descent to Hell. So there you go. And uh, we'll give you a little piece of that one. So it's pretty jammy. It's, It's really pretty, actually. And some guitar work going on here um, over the top. Now, from here, it t- kind of takes you back to the first section, uh, umbilical syllables. There's a long outro, which gets to be very King Crimson-ish. Uh, what's that last track on Red uh, called? I forget. Starless. Starless. So there's a lot of elements of Starless there with the saxophone and some of the uh, kind of unorthodox sounds being created here. But 13 minutes, uh, Cygnus, uh, Nubs. This is going to be tricky because there's so much to these songs and they're very sectioned out, but kind of as a whole, what do you think of the first track or are there any specific sections that you particularly like? It's the high point of the album for me. I think this song represents everything good about Francis the Mute because it has some sensible structure and those, that structure involves dynamics. You know, for example, you know, you go from that umbilical syllables part, which is very frantic and up-tempo and um, a lot going on there rhythmically, but the the part you just played goes into this you know really groovy, understated section. But it's in fourteen eight. That's the time signature, it's in. <laughs> right? Isn't that really like when you sit down behind a drum set and you're kind of warming up? I mean, you're always in fourteen eight, aren't you? Isn't always, yeah. Your I just go-to? sit down and yeah. you just. I mean, it's instinctive to play in fourteen eight <laughs> exactly. But that creates this mood. And when Cedric goes into the, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm like, holy shit, am I all in? I mean, that is like, okay, take me wherever you guys want to go. Because that is, that's emotion, right? And this band, yeah. at its best, has emotional peaks and valleys. At its worst, is so all over the place that you can't really feel anything that's going on. But, oh, that moment is just, that's my favorite moment on the album for sure. I remember, you know, th- this is one of those albums that you pop in and, and you kind of give it the first listen and you're just like you're again whether you like it or don't like it your jaw's kind of on the floor it's like okay uh, that was that was something that track alone i mean that for this first 13 minutes you get to the end and i, I at least for me it was like oh my god like <laughs> like i'd never heard anything like that before you know and just the overall kind of journey that they take you on on that first track I mean, afterwards, you're almost like you almost need to pause it for a couple minutes before you get to the next one because you're kind of wiped out. But to me, I agree that's that's being wiped out in a good way. 
Um, so then we get into, I guess the single and, uh, I'm sure these guys, you know, didn't like this song cause it was too commercial or whatever. It did get some radio airplay. It features flea on the trumpet. So that's, uh, these guys, uh, actually both flea and John Frusciante appear on this album quite a bit. Um, but this is the single, this is clocking in at just under six minutes per this album standards. That's like basically nothing. But here we go with The Widow. So this is just a song. I mean, this is something that you heard a little bit on Deloused in certain moments, but you certainly don't hear otherwise on this record. But this is a song. This is a single. Um, I love introducing people to this album. You know, again, it's kind of like, I don't know if you're going to like this, or you're not going to like this, but you're going to notice it. And most people kind of point to The Widow, obviously, in saying, wow, that was a really kind of unexpected good song. You know that. Um, has some, dare I say it, pop elements to it. The record company certainly told these guys, you got to have something in here that <laughs> that has the opportunity to be played on the radio. You got to have something in here that's sort of digestible from a single execution standpoint. And they came up with The Widow. And I mean, I think it's a pretty good song. I have a theory on this song. I've never shared it with you. Pl- please, please share. It absolutely could be wrong. Absolutely. I think The Widow is actually and was intended to be the true conclusion to Cygnus. And I think what happened was record company or whoever says, let's chop this out. Because if you think about it, it really would bring Cygnus to a really nice dramatic conclusion. The one thing about Cygnus is that it doesn't conclude in a in a way that makes a lot of sense. It kind of goes back to the bit from the beginning, and then it just sort of ends. And this would be a very dramatic, almost like cinematic closing to Cygnus, Visman, Cygnus. And so I think it was that. And I think they chopped it out and created this single out of it. But it's even funny to call this a single because I know they made an edit that I think is like less than three minutes or close to three minutes. The, The song portion of it is extremely short. And it does, you know... Verse, chorus, verse, I don't bridge with the weird trumpet solo and then one more chorus. <laughs> but hey, you don't like Flea's trumpet solo? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's interesting. I'm glad you mentioned the widow single because, yes, there was an edit and, yes, there was a single. What appears with the widow on that single, sort of a B side, I guess, is a song called Francis the Mute. That was supposed to be the opener on this album. So, you know, and I, I've got it here. I don't know if you want to spend a minute of it, but why don't we actually do that? Because I do think it's relevant. So that's that's Francis the Mute. Now, this song was supposed to open the album. They They ran out of time. Okay, so it got basically, you know, scrapped and placed onto this widow single. Now, here's what's really interesting. 
I said from the beginning, the record is 77 minutes, but it has 64 minutes of music, which means that there's 13 minutes of noise, like ambient noise on this record. I'm sure the record company hated that there was 13 minutes of noise. And you have this song called Francis the Mute, which clocks in at 14 and a half minutes. That was supposed to open the record. Now, perhaps they could have taken down the ambient noise to like a minute and put Francis the Mute on the damn thing. Right. But it just goes to show you, it's like they weren't willing to compromise on the way they wanted this thing presented, even to the point where the the track that was supposed to open the record got cut because they would rather cut this song that is supposed to lead the record and lead this story, the title track, then get rid of some of the ambient noise or maybe take Cassandra down from 35 minutes to 31 or whatever. So very interesting part of this is the disclusion of the title track. It's an odd decision, but it's an odd band, you know, and I remember seeing that it was like, oh, okay. They put the title track of the album on the single and the B side is 15 minutes long. That's where it's just hard to connect with these guys. You know, you just, they just lose you at moments like that. It's like, why are you doing this? And there's good intrigue and there's bad intrigue. And these guys lived pretty dangerously on that rather fine line. Agree completely. Now, here is something that, you know, no matter how you add it up, is quite an intriguing track. This is called Elvia Alvieke. Elvia is a uh, character in the story, and obviously it was a name from the diary. Now, this song is really in two parts. That's kind of the main sort of driving piece. Um, And then the second part is a very, very interesting, and I had never heard this before, you know, slowed down salsa section. These guys obviously were, as I am very much, into the Fania records label and kind of the salsa scene of New York city around the sixties and seventies. It's a, and this is a little bit of an ode to that, but done in a very Mars Volta way with a slow salsa beat, which was, you know, it's almost like slowing the tape down. It's, it's pretty cool. So here's the second section of Elvia. I mentioned the Fania label, one of Omar's heroes and a, and a big legend basically within salsa music during that time period is Larry Harlow. He's actually playing uh, during that section. He was, he was the first piano player of the Fania all-stars and played with some, you know, legendary artists around that time. So sure. It's very cool for Omar to have uh, Larry playing on that. And John Frusciante, who I mentioned earlier, plays all the guitar solos. Um, during this song so they they had some guest help on this but boy it's a fascinating song I, I remember this one really jumped out on first listen of just being a unique kind of approach that you'd never really heard before one of the other things i think it's kind of cool dichotomy 
during the up-tempo section, uh, Cedric is singing in Spanish. And during the salsa section, Cedric is singing in English. So kind of a cool, I think, approach there. Nubs, what do you think of this one? I've never liked it. Didn't like it when it came out. And I like it less now. It, it contributes to me a kind of a dreadful middle of this album. This album has bookends that are legendary. And the middle is just so forgettable and, and endless. I mean, when I listen to this song now, it's like, is this song ever going to end? Like by the time they go into like seemingly the fourth salsa section, it's like, really? Like we're going to do this again? It's like how to ruin a good riff. And it has not aged well. Uh, I, I think this would have been a very, very effective piece if they would have done one main riff, one salsa, maybe end with the guitar solo and then go into some, a new song or something else. Uh, but it just like does the same pattern. Hey, are you trying to say that Omar as producer of this album became indulgent? Is that, <laughs> right, what, yeah. you're trying to, is that what you're trying to say? Yeah. It's a, it's a quantum leap, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is where you need a producer. This is where you need somebody to say, dude, like your listeners are not going to hang for another one of these. Well, to that point, I mean, I think we can all agree. The Mars Volta was a top 40 darling, right? I mean, just top 40 radio couldn't get enough of them. Real singles act. Yeah. And I was thinking, you know, we haven't done this in a bit, but Elvia is probably the Mars Volta's only pure opportunity for a, for a talk up. Feel like doing a talk up today? Absolutely. Would love to. Yeah. I think that this, I think if there's any, any Mars Volta track, uh, that would make a top 40 radio DJ talk up. I think it's this. Why don't you give it a go first? You ready? Absolutely. Okay. Now don't forget the weather and the time. Okay. Here we go. Yeah. Let's see if I can hit the post. Okay. Here we go. Hey, hey, coming at you here on WWXX. It's a cold one out, snowy 1103. We got a little Mars Volta for you. What the heck is a Mars Volta? I don't know. Let's find out right here. <laughs> What the heck is a Mars Volta? It's a great question. Uh, that was pretty good. That was pretty good. I would say for, you know, being a little, uh, I mean, out of practice, right? Certainly out of practice. All right, let's hear yours. Come on. Get oh, yeah. All right. Of course. Yeah, you can hit the post. All right, I'll, I'll let one fly. Here we go. All right, let's go. All right, coming at you here on 88.1 WNBC. This is the Mars Volta. They're from El Paso. I think they're a little El Loco. Here we go. (laughs) Well, yeah, yeah, well done. I like Mm -hmm. that. All right, thanks. All right, well, radio talk ups aside, uh, we disagree a little bit on this one. I think it's a very creative, uh, this, this dichotomy of this big and and you mentioned Bonham earlier in the way that Theodore can capture some of that power. I love the way he captures that during the sort of driving section. And I think that the slow down salsa deal is just very cool, but, uh, but I do agree with you a little bit. Does it need to be 12 minutes? Eh, it probably could be argued that it doesn't need to be 12 minutes, but Hey, that's just what you get with these cats. Here's one that sure as hell doesn't need to be 13 minutes and this one is called Miranda that ghost just isn't holy anymore you 
Now it kind of picks up a bit and the drums come in and I mean, listen, it's a cool atmospheric tune. It really is. But I mean, the first like four minutes is just noise and the second two minutes is noise and a cool song that just, I don't know why it needed all that bookended noise. It's a little sludgy, but I think it's a nice break a little bit. I mean, you're coming off of some pretty frantic stuff here between Cygnus and Alvia, and obviously the widow's more of a shorter piece. So I think it does what they wanted it to do as far as the kind of story and arc of the record pre Cassandra, but didn't need the ambient noise. Doesn't need to be this long, but I I actually like the tune itself. To me, they missed an opportunity to do what they did on the lost in the chromatorium. You know, the opening track on there is that sun at luminaire or whatever. And it, it sets a mood, but it's also like a minute 50 seconds and it does its job. This track appears to not really have a job because it just, again, it, it's excessive and the excessiveness takes away from whatever point it's trying to prove in terms of setting up what's to come and wrapping up what you've heard. And look, this is a progressive rock guy saying that, you know, it's excessive. So it's not the length, it's the purpose. And that's one thing you always have to think about with this album and with the Mars Volta. It's not impressive to have a a 14 minute song if the song lacks purpose and lacks, you know, usable content for all of those 14 minutes. And it takes away from the momentum of the album. And again, I think the main idea behind this is really cool, but it's a lot like Elvia, you know, like make it in a way that's tangible and that almost is cool in its condensed aspect versus being impressive in its let's draw this out as long as possible thing. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I agree with that. I think that Sometimes, uh, especially guys like this think they're being thoughtful by, um, extending and indulging. And you see it a lot with drummers. It's like, oh, if I add this cymbal crash or if I had this fill or, you know, that's thoughtful, but actually sometimes, uh, becoming simplified and understated in music and in any art can be incredibly more thoughtful than trying to do too much. And you know, I, I agree. I think they took something here that's cool. I mean, the song itself, again, it's atmospheric. It's nice. But it, it, it does draw out a little bit. But I'll tell you what, it, it takes you into, um, and I don't even know really the proper adjective to use on Cassandra Gemini. It clocks in at 32 minutes, 32 seconds. Why don't we play a few sections first, Nub, and then we can kind of talk about it as a whole. Because... I do like to think of it as an entire song, even though the tracks are sort of broken out. So let's kick it off here with uh, one of the early sections. This is during, uh, this actually is the very beginning of the song here. The section that's noted as uh, multiple spouse wounds here with Cassandra part one. So it's this really frantic beginning, but it actually then takes you into something that has a bit more groove to it um, and kind of incorporates you know, a, a, a pretty straightforward kind of vocal melody with a little bit of a chorus hook. This part two, uh, Tarantism takes you into something that bit of a rocker. Here we go. 
pretty blazing waltz there, isn't it? <laughs> um, this really kind of takes things to, you know, to pretty high tempo, high energy piece. Uh, the third section will give you a little piece of this. This is the uh, plant and nail section. Horns, strings, very majestic. Um, and then things calm down a little bit as you get into the next section, which is famine pulse. real key line right there to the story you've always had a family in the burial of your home i won't dig into it because then you'll get me all started on the story and you know you don't want to do that nub but kind of breaks things down a little bit with that whisper section from cedric we get into our next section um Pisassis. So it's really a bass line that's, you know, pretty sludgy with some kind of guitar effect and guitar work taking place over it, you know, meant to be pretty atmospheric. And then you get into, we're getting toward the uh, kind of closing sections here with Consefo. King Crimson. So, so obviously we're bringing back that same riff and progression from Tarantism, which kind of takes you out to the song. Now it gets a bit more frantic, but it's along those same musical thematics kind of following up on this, you know, sort of chaotic uh, saxophone piece, which adds a really nice element. And then we're closing up the main part of Cassandra here, the way we started with multiple spouse wounds. Reprise. And then this is the closing, which is the sarcophagi piece that you heard at the very beginning of the album. Um, obviously with the at full volume and and at the full surface to the listener, but a, a bookended closing to Cassandra Gemini and to the Francis the Mute album as a whole. So, Nubs, we kind of picked it apart there a little bit as best we could. Um, let's take a step back and look at the entire 32-minute piece here. Certainly, I know you've done some re-listening lately. I'm not sure how much you dug into Cassandra back in the day. But what do you think of this piece? I think it's obviously incredibly epic, but LVI has not aged well. This has aged incredibly well, you know, and, and you figure yeah. out the sensibility of the structure. It's just like Cygnus. You know, why do I like that so much? Because 
it's got complex structure, but it's got complex structure that makes musical sense. And there's throwbacks to certain themes and there's dynamics. And this to me is just like a longer version of that. But we've talked a lot about excessiveness. This is not excessive. Every minute of those 32 minutes counts. Yeah, I agree. You know, and that says a lot because 32 minutes is incredibly ambitious. I mean, the only, the only rival I can think of is Porcupine Trees, The Incident, which is what a 60 minute song, but this is sort of there (laughs) in that world. You got to love Steven Wilson, man. Absolutely. (laughs) But it's, you know, every minute of these 32 minutes means something to the overall feel of the composition and the overall epic that you're listening to. I love how it begins and I love how it ends. And that's the thing. That's like when I think of Francis the Mute, it's just the bookends. I love the bookends of the album. I love the bookends of Cygnus and the bookends of Cassandra. To me, you'll have to clarify this. I always interpreted in a very amateur way because I did not. Oh, study. here we go. You're going to yeah. get into the story a little bit. Let's it's not, not, nothing to do with lyrics, though. Ah, okay. The, the, <laughs> yeah, the opening piece is, is muted. It has a filter on it that disrupts the ability to hear the clarity within it. Right. The very end piece has clarity. So I always interpreted this as that the character by the end gains clarity. I don't know if that means anything to the story or not, but I think you're onto something there, buddy. I hey, think you're hey, onto something. You Look at you with your interpretation. That's right. That's right. That, that's, you, know. you know, sometimes I think you have no soul and then you'll say something like that. That just proves me otherwise. That proves that I have a tiny one. But uh, yeah, it, it and that always rang with me. It was like, OK, cool. This character winds through all this madness and at the end finds clarity. That's about all I needed to know about the story, <laughs> you know, to keep me engaged in whatever lyrically was going on. But yeah, I, I think that what stands out about Cassandra is 32 minutes of thoughtful composition and meaningful structure. And that to me makes it exceptional. I know you're quite fond of it. I do. I do know. That. I, I mean, I think it's a masterpiece. Listen, I, you know, I've, I, I could listen to this every day and I've gone through periods of time where I have it's funny sometimes I'm at work and I have a headphone in and like people probably think I'm listening to some like you know some 80s like uh, sports montage music you know to keep me keep me energized at my corporate job and I got like the middle section of Cassandra going and it's just a total mess and it's like <laughs> oh my god if they if they only knew you know but um oh I you know I, I've gone through bouts and I still go through bouts where I thoroughly enjoy the whole thing thoroughly enjoy this is not and i'm not really one to absorb a 32 minute track i get a little bored or i just want to go to the parts that i like not on this one the whole thing is an arc to me musically and i really agree with your take i think it's as efficient of a 32 minute piece as you'll ever hear there are moments musically that are just so climactic you know, I mean, the, the, it really takes you on a ride. And I think a very thoughtful one and a very meticulous one. This is Omar getting it right. This is Omar mapping something. This probably took him months to arrange. And uh, it's impressive. And I think it's special. Omar himself said, he said, ever since I was a teenager and had various listening experiences with the likes of King Crimson. John Coltrane and Miles Davis's Bitches Brew. I've always wanted to do something like Cassandra, something deformed and out of control, 
something enormous and violent, a whole album fitted into one composition, something ruthless that no one can remain careless to. And honestly, you know, probably half the crap Omar says is kind of you roll your eyes. I don't know that I can say it much better. You can say it much better than that. You have to take notice when you hear this. And if you're able to give it the time and give it the listens to really understand structurally and progressively what's happening, I think Cassandra Gemini is a masterpiece. So that wraps us up. Five tracks, even though it felt like a hell of a lot more. 77 minutes with 64 minutes of music, 13 minutes of unnecessary noise. Nubs, did Francis the Mute matter? It's a hard album to have any retrospect on because you and I have talked about this. It it still doesn't feel that old to me, right? Like it's true. It's true. And 14 years is is enough time to create some retrospect, but it's not enough time to see what will happen to this album. I think it doesn't matter because, and this is a this is one of the many problems that we've dissected here on on the podcast, is that the music industry has changed in tremendous ways since this album came out. And it's affected creativity and it's affected the role of the album. And everything has become so short and small and concise and 40 characters and blah, blah, blah. And I don't know if like today's listener has the patience for this album. I also, unfortunately, align Francis the Mute with sort of the beginning of the end for the Mars Volta, right? So it's a weird and tough album to, to put in that category, to, to assign, does it matter, does it not matter? What I do know is that this might be the last of a truly creative time in music that we may never get again. A time when these two guys, as pretentious as they were, would come along and say, let's rewrite the way things should work. And let's do it in a way that requires patience, that requires deeper dives into what we're doing here. To that, I think it could have a legacy, but it's too early to tell, you know, what what it might be able to connect with and what it might not be able to connect with. The thing I know is it connected with us and it matters in our musical history. I just really have no perspective to know whether it matters in anyone else's, you know, I really don't. What do you think? Does it matter? Well, if I'm interpreting this correct, because, you know, now I'm in interpretation mode here. You said it doesn't matter. Then you said it kind of does. Then you said you kind of don't know. So in typical Marsville, I think Mars Volta yeah. has gotten in your head now. Yes, totally. yes. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Good. Good observation. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you why this matters. And, and you said it. Now, you may not have known that you said it, but it's the last of its kind. It's the last of its kind. That's why it matters. Because even a year or two later, I'm not sure this album gets made. And I think that's part of what hurt these guys creatively is that they started to become hampered by track listings and those things. And you know, Hey, that's just the way it goes. I mean, there's not, that's not good, bad, or like screw the industry or the industry's right. Or it's just the way it, turns out you nailed it in saying that an album like this not sure there's a band that's interested in putting out something like this there sure as hell isn't a record label 
that's interested in putting out something like this anymore. I mean, it just wouldn't happen. Just wouldn't. And the amount of creative control that these guys had, the amount of creative control that they executed, and this piece of art that they put out there is just something that even a short time period after this, I don't think it happens the same way. So I think it matters tremendously, maybe not critically and maybe not commercially or any of those things, but name another record that came out after this that took a similar approach that, that actually could and did take a similar approach. And I I think you'll find that there aren't any. So I, I truly think that forget what you think about the Mars Volta, forget even what you think about this sound and this approach and this music. I feel like it's the last of its kind. And for better or for worse, especially for a prog guy, that's important. That's important because these guys really were the the modern, pure prog outfit of the mid-2000s and might be the last. It's only pure, honestly, T, is the before-mentioned Porcupine Tree and especially the Incident album, which did come out after Francis the Mute. So I, I, that's why I brought it up because I, yeah, but he's British, you know, that does, I mean, that's, that doesn't, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just kidding. Yeah. (laughs) You know, major labels who put out something this daring, but yeah, Porcupine Tree broke up soon after that. And the Mars Volta was never the same after this. So I agree with you. I, I think it's all related for sure. No question. All right. The final cut. Very interested in this. Nubs, do you have this on the turntable? Do you have this in the collection? Do you have this collecting dust or do you have this in the for sale bin? Where are we going here, buddy? See, I've got Francis the Mute collecting dust. And that's because of a very, uh, a very spotty middle of the album that has not aged well. And it's taken away the, the will to pop it on and listen to it top to bottom. It's a big investment, you know, to dig this thing from top to bottom. Now, Cygnus will make forever make regular appearances as will Cassandra. And the nice part about the redive into this is kind of rediscovering the magnificence of that. And, and I think that'll be a regular, the middle three tracks in the album, none of them have, have dated well, in my opinion, you know, I'll always own this album, but the frequency of, of pulling it out, listening to it top to bottom, particularly if it's this versus Delouse in the comatorium, you know, I've been, it's pretty obvious where my allegiance would be on that one. So where would you do a, where would you put your final cut on Deloused? On the turntable. Really? Okay. Yeah. No doubt. Interesting. It, it's, it's, to me, it's one of the great albums of that decade. And, and you talk about importance, you know, and, and it just, it captures something different, just something more focused than Francis the Mute did. So that, that'd be on the turntable. Wait, see, where would Deloused be for you? <laughs> Oh man. Um, so the louse probably would be collecting dust for me after Francis, the mute. I find it, I find it a little bit difficult, a little bit, um, like desensory to go back to the I mean, it's a fantastic record. It's great, but it's to me, it's so abandoned. It's senior year over abandoned. It's freshman year. Hmm. Gotcha. Yeah. But that's what's, I mean, th- these two albums are really fascinating, you know, and, and part of, I'm, I'm glad we've talked about Delouse so much because if you at all are interested in discovering this band, you got to listen to both of these. 
you know, it's a critical part. What's your final cut on Francis and me? Where do you got it? I, I'm putting it on the turntable and here's why. It, it's not perfect. Okay. There's too much noise. There's too much crap. Now, yeah, that's very Mars Volta and it's all part of kind of the thing. And you sort of have to take it for what it is. And, and I spend a lot of time flipping past the noise. Okay. I'm not sitting there like plowing through the first four minutes of Miranda. Okay. But I will listen to this album forever. You know, this will be one that doesn't for me ever get put on the shelf for longer than, you know, matter of few weeks. I mean, I got to listen to Cassandra every couple weeks, you know, because it just fascinates me. And, you know, I think the middle of the album, I think Miranda definitely is a low point. Um, but I like Elvia and its creativity. The Widow to me is fine. And you're right. I mean, the bookends of this are just amazing. I mean, they're amazing. These are amazing songs. This is, this, these are mind blowing musical things happening here. And with Theodore on drums and the, 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 the creativity and the sort of unexpected nature of what you get here to me is just brilliant. And that overcomes its imperfections of which there are plenty for me, which is why it's on the turntable. I love introducing people to this album. If there's somebody that like has just an ounce of musical appreciation that where you even get just a little bit of a thought that hmm, they might, they might be in, get into this. They might appreciate this. It is such a fun album to introduce people to. And Deloust is a great intro piece too. It's a great seal breaker on Mars. I don't, I, I think you probably should start with Deloust to kind of warm up, but there are spectacular things happening on this record that make it extremely unique in many ways, as we talked about to me, important and uh, one that has absolute longevity for me. All right. Well, I'm, I'm not sure if Dolores would have liked this one or not, but uh, hey, Dolores, would you have liked Francis the Mute? Oh, okay. Well, fair enough. Nubs, what do you got in your head, buddy? <laughs> I've been listening. And this is weird because it's very non-winter. Uh, for me in terms of my typical listening habits, but been listening to a lot of Eddie money lately. So oh yeah, take sure. me home tonight. Be my baby is uh, <laughs> with the uh, Ronnie Spector? with the, with Ronnie Spector. That's right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So Eddie money had good songs, man. It's just, Speaking of Ronnie Spector, Phil Spector, obviously uh, lost him this week. Yes, absolutely. Very fascinating producer and, and a criminal. So there you go. Yeah. <laughs> Fascinating is one word, no doubt. Second would be a rather obscure 90s hit, but a, a very good one, which is Brother Kane's And Fools Shine On, which you know should have been a bigger hit, no doubt. And Brother Kane kind of an overlooked, underrated band from the 90s. And last would be the opening track off Stories from the City, Stories from the Sea, which is the best album from PJ Harvey. And uh, that would be Big Exit. See, what is in your head? <laughs> Nobs, I've got uh, Stevie Nicks, uh, the sexiest female voice of all time. And if anybody wants to challenge me on that, just don't because you're going to lose that argument. Uh, doing Talk to Me, uh, my buddy Sam F's podcast uh, this week had that as an interlude. And I was like, oh, that's an 
awesome song. Uh, a cut by Prince off the Sign of the Times record, I Could Never Take the Place of Your Man. And the last one, a little something different, the Little River Band, who I've talked about on here before with Help Is On Its Way. Nubs, thank you for plowing through this one. It's a It's a fascinating record to talk about. And uh, really great to get some of your takes. And if there are people out there that maybe hadn't heard of these guys before, maybe they'll check it out. But uh, it was fun to go through. Certainly a, a a memorable time period musically for us. It's a great choice as always, T. Appreciate it. And uh, fun conversation. And uh, yeah, hopefully it leads to a couple of people checking it out. And, and it's a good gateway drug into some pretty interesting music from this time. Well, Nubs and I are going to go back to work on our 32-minute song, but in the meantime, here's Nubs's nine-second masterpiece as we close out episode 30 here on Two Twins and an album. See you next week. Two Twins and an album. Well, that's about it. That's all we have. I hope it wasn't too disappointing. We will see you on tour. Until then, take it easy.